Okay, so we are on week seven. I, I'm going to kind of start off by just saying that I'm actually in a very good mood. Uh, and I say that because this sermon makes me sound a little cranky. Uh, and I'm, I apologize in advance for that. But um, I am kind of walking through this thing. And the last week we went through what I think is a very important exercise. We walked through four questions I think anybody should ask before they decide upon a religion. And I know it's, it's very uh, out of vogue to refer to Christianity as a religion, but we are. And so uh, I think any religion should ask these four questions. And so we went through that last week. We asked the questions. We established the answers. That's online. That sermon we couldn't broadcast, but the sermon's online. So if you, uh, if you missed it, it's online. You can catch it. But let me just run through the questions and the answers real quick. Is there a God? Yes. Is he moral? Yes. Can there be more than one God? No. Could every religion in the world actually be just worshiping the same God? No. And the answers to all those questions are explained in last week's sermon. I did say, those of you who were listening sharply, uh, that there were five questions you needed to answer, and that's only four. I didn't get to the fifth question. I'm going to deal the whole time today on the fifth question, and I think it's a really pivotal one. What makes you think your religion's the right one? If there is only one God, and if there's only one religion that is the true religion of that God, what makes you think Christianity is it? I'm assuming you all think Christianity is it because you're here, right? Another way of asking that question is, um, why are you here? Why are you here instead of in a mosque someplace or, you know, a kingdom hall or, or, you know, I don't know, Buddhist temple? I mean, we have them. There aren't many of them around here, but there are. You could be there. Um, why here? Why are, you, why are you professing Christian? You know, a lot of people profess to be a Christian, and I don't know if they are or they aren't, but they, uh, they say they are. And if you ask them what religion they are, they say they're Christian. Um, so why? Why are you, why are you that? Uh, and I will, I will admit that uh, two things. First of all, uh, I, I admit my, my religion started out as a hand-me-down religion. My dad was Presbyterian minister. I was not only going to be Christian, I was going to be Presbyterian. And that explains why I grew up Presbyterian because, you know, my dad had the car. And so that's where we went. And so uh, there's just no question about that. That was going to be. But at some point, that's not a good enough reason. And, and the funny thing is when I talk to people, and this is kind of an occupational hazard now, but even before we started Spirit Chapel, I had this, this insatiable desire to know things. I'd ask people, why do you go to that church? And people would tell me what church they, you know, they go to. I said, why that one? And what I found out was, honestly, if I were to rank them, and I don't know, this isn't a you know, scientific study, but if I were to rank them and put them all together, kind of, uh, I would find that 80% of the people, at least, are in the church they're in because of their family or because of their friends. And that's just the reality, which, by the way, is why the best way of getting people to come to church is to invite them. It's better than any marketing program I can come up with. Because people come because of family or because of friends, especially in this area because Catholicism is more than a religion, it's a nationality. You know, I was born Catholic and I will die Catholic. It's like, you know, actually born Catholic, but yeah, cradle Catholic, there's actually a thing. And so uh, they, 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 they believe it because their family is. And if you ask them, why are you Catholic? Because my family's Catholic. And they'll even like say, my grandmother would turn over in grave if I, you know, left the church. I can't, there's no way I can do that. Um, that's a really bad reason to follow any religion because I think we all know that sometimes our families are wrong. Mine was, you know, my dad was wrong about a lot of things. Um, so what makes me think he's right about religion? And, and so if you, if you know that and, and religion's important, why are you taking somebody else's word for it? I spoke to a guy once who told me, uh, and this was interesting because it, it was a twist on a normal one. He said, well, I, I'm Catholic, he said, because of my mother. 
I said, okay, again, that's why you started Catholic, but whatever. He said, well, it's because my mother was the smartest person I ever knew. She passed away when he was telling me this. She's the smartest person I ever knew. And when she became a mother, when the first child was born, um, she realized she needed to choose a religion to raise her children in. And so she actually went to college and took a theology course of all the religions and studied it, and she chose Catholicism after all of that. Now, first of all, hats off, because I don't know if anybody takes it that seriously anymore. I don't know anybody who does that. You know, at least you know, she took it seriously. Um, he said, and since she's the smartest person I know, and the smartest person that I know studied it and came up with this as the solution, I just chose Catholicism. I said, but that can't be true. You know, and you know, that bothered him. But I said, no, that's not why you chose, that's not why she chose it either, and here's why I know that. Because if you're telling me that she chose Catholicism because of studying intellect, then that tells me that anybody with a nice intellect who studies the situation will become Catholic, and I can assure you that's not the case. In fact, my father, you know, your mother was smart, I know, but my, my father actually had a master's degree in theology, and he didn't choose Catholicism. And in fact, I used to work with a guy uh, in a computer field, weirdly, who had a PhD in theology, and he was a Muslim. So, and he was very bright, very bright. So intellect and study alone didn't make that, dissolution, that selection for her. I don't know what did, but I can promise you that wasn't it. And all you're really saying is, if I weren't Catholic, I would be besmirching the memory of my dear mother, and I'm not willing to do that, which is just what every Catholic tells me. Why are you Christian? What's the purpose? It really can't be, it shouldn't be, because my dad said so, or your mom said so. It shouldn't be, because you don't let them decide everything else in your life. Why are you letting them decide this, the most important question? It even really can't be, even though this is the answer for a lot of people, that I grew up in a Christian nation. Because if you're my age, which I know is old for some of you, but when you were my age, we grew up in a Christian nation. It would have been weird if you didn't go to a Christian church when I grew up. Everybody went to some variation of Christian church just about, at least everybody I knew. And so if you're going to grab any religion, it makes sense to take the one that's kind of the unofficial religion of the nation. And we were founded on Christian principles by Christians. I know people, revisionists want to say that's not true, but it's absolutely true. Even Thomas Jefferson, when he was the head of the public schools, declared the Bible was the best textbook and put the Bible in place. So it's just ridiculous to say that's not true. But now we're a post-Christian nation. And what do you say to the people who grew up in Asia or India? Just go ahead and be a Buddhist. Just go ahead and believe Hindu. Whatever your country decides, that's what you should do. I think we know our country can get it wrong. That can't be the answer. Well, what else are you going to use? You know, what else do you use to select? Now, a lot of Christians back out. And here's where they play it's just faith card. I just have the faith, and that's my faith. Right? And, and listen, here's, here's the thing. I understand that in any religion, there's going to come a moment when logic lets go when you can't reason through this. And we know that because God is beyond our comprehension. Every religion says that. We're talking about somebody greater than us, smarter than us, bigger than us, better than us, who's been around for so long, has done so many things, there's no way we can fully understand them. There's going to come some point where your logic's not going to make you there. If you tell me, look, I will only understand and believe in a God that I can fully understand, you're telling me your God's going to be yourself. Because guess what? You're the only person you're going to ever fully understand. I've been married to Victoria for 16 years. She does not understand me. Not fully, maybe even this much. Because it doesn't matter. You're never going to fully understand even another person. Forget God. So if you're saying, I'm only going to worship somebody who I fully understand, those people are actually being honest. They worship themselves. That's what they're saying. And so we know there's going to come a time where you're going to have this leap of faith. I know. But you have to look before you leap. 
And I don't think we're there yet. I think, we, I think reason and logic can take us further along the road before we start jumping. And I think it needs to because when people ask you the question, why are you a Christian? I think you need a better answer. Well, I just believe, you know, that's what I believe. And that's what frustrates a lot of people because they can sense already that's not right. That's not why you're really a Christian. And, and you're just kind of copping out. And, and I'm telling you what, kids, those kids who just left here, they will smell a cop out a mile away. And they're cynical anyway at that age. And you start copping out on them, they go, well, that doesn't sound right to me. And I don't have that faith, so I'm out. And that's why a lot of the people, kids who grew up in a church are out because we start copping out instead of really looking at the real answers. So how else are you going to choose your religion? How about numbers? A billion people can't be wrong. Actually, a billion people can. And that's the problem. We know that numbers don't work. McDonald's doesn't make the best hamburgers, but they sell the most, right? For some reason beyond the comprehension of me, Kardashians had a show for years because of ratings. Somebody was watching that thing. You know, I'm not going to let the masses make my decision. When I think masses, I think dumb sheep. I'm not going to let them decide. The most numbers don't win. We can't, we can't go with that. How about the oldest religion? The oldest religion must be the right religion, right? Because it probably got straight from the source. Well, good luck if you're a Christian, because I can promise you Christianity is not the oldest religion. In fact, Judaism isn't either, and we know that because the Bible tells us when God calls Abraham away to start the tribe of Israel, he's pulling him away from the false gods. He says, don't serve those false gods, serve me. So those gods already existed. If you go to the oldest religion, you're going to be some variation of Hindu. That's what most people believe, and it's the best they can understand. Actually, it's hard to know because written language only started a few thousand years before Christ came along, and before that, we don't know. You know, you find a cave drawing of an elephant. Were they worshiping it, or did it stomp somebody and they're trying to tell the story? We don't really know. It's just a picture. We don't have words. But um, oldest isn't necessarily the best either because every religion talks about this at least one cataclysmic event that happened, which wiped out most of the population, which could have killed off all those people. You know, we called it the flood. But did you know that Native American Indians actually have, they found cave paintings about a flood? I mean, every religion kind of talks about some cataclysmic thing that happened. So we can't really guarantee that the right people live through that. And so that doesn't really ring true either. So where are you now in your picking of your religion? Have you ever thought about it? I know I make this, you should see last night, everybody got so uncomfortable when I was this. Some people just are sure lightning striking me any moment. Um, but... I, I just think we're allowed to ask these questions. It does, it's not anti-faith to say some things should be reasonable because God told us in Romans that we can understand by just looking at what we see the God that we can't see. That's what Romans promises us. That if God said it, it's true. If it's true, we must be able to do that. He also says things in the Bible like, come, let us reason together. He also says things in the Bible like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, and all of your strength. He does not tell us to check our minds at the door when we walk in a spirit chapel. We're allowed to think, understanding that at some point we're going to have to say, okay, that's above my pay grade. I can't understand that, but I don't think we're there yet. So here's the thing. When I was writing this nine years ago, I just really felt that God had pointed his finger at me like, he, like Jesus to the disciples and said, well, who do you say I am? And that's kind of what the whole book was. Who do you say I am? What do you really believe? Stop handing me hand-me-down stuff. What do you believe? And I, I, I started writing this book, and that's how this whole thing started. And so when I got to this, it was right after I followed the exercise we went through last week. And I thought, you know what? Here's how I'm going to choose my religion. Here's the way I'm going to choose it. That little exercise last week left me with a big question. The religion that answers that question is the one I'm going to follow. Now, they don't have to answer it the way I want it to, 
But a religion that ignores this question, I can't possibly follow because it doesn't answer the most basic question for me. Now, this is the most basic question of religion. Maybe it's just me, but what is this main question? And it goes to this. Remember, we have a moral God who created us, and we went through that exercise, and, and, he, and then there's evil in the world. Why? And we talked about you know, how that actually keys you into the fact that there is God, but there is evil in the world. Bad things happen to good people. In fact, the other side's true too. Evil people sometimes seem to prosper. And you look at that and you say, God, well, I don't understand this. If you're a good God, you're a moral God, and you want me to believe in you, why are you letting this happen? And that actually backs up one more question to the one I really want to ask, which is this. God, why'd you leave us? Because clearly he was here at one point. You know, clearly he walked among us. This was his creation. You know, before I even get to the Bible, which tells us he was here walking among us, he's not now. You know, here in spirit, okay, I understand that. Jesus Christ came and walked among us. He was here then, but he's not here now, not physically. I can't call him up. I can't talk to him. I can't watch him on television. He doesn't have a YouTube channel. I can't go and ask why. Why is this going on? He's not here physically. Why? What happened? Why aren't you here? Why'd you leave us? Do you know how hard this is, God, without you? Why'd you leave us? I mean, I'll, I'll accept everything else the religion tells me, but I need this question to answer. Why? And what I'm really asking is a question that kind of comes up in our culture. Now, you've probably seen this in a million movies and television shows. This happens a lot. This is what we writers call backstory, right? And you have to explain why Rambo kills somebody, or you have to understand how, you know, Captain America became Captain America or something. You've got to go to this backstory. And a backstory turns out, especially when someone's violent or something, it, a lot of times the backstory, sometimes the bad guy, is that they grew up without a father. Have you noticed this? This shows up all the time. In fact, usually it's kind of like uh, the, 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 the common thing you'll hear is, Dad went out for a pack of cigarettes one day and never came back. You've heard that. Some of you may have lived that. I don't know. But you may have heard that. And then what happens in the TV show or the movie is there's this scene, usually told in a flashback. When, when the boy turns like 18, Dad shows up. Hasn't seen him. Five years old. Had some pictures. That was it. Never met him. And, and, and the, the kid turns 18 and suddenly there's Dad. He wants to reconnect with him. And you've all seen this scene play out, right? They'll meet in some public place, like a diner, and uh, they'll get together, and the dad's kind of awkward, you know, and that boy's just pissed. You know, there's this anger there. And eventually, that boy asks the question, why'd you leave? Why'd you leave us? Do you know how hard it was for mom without you there? Right? And usually then the, the writing gets really lame because the dad will say something really stupid like, Oh, I was just a bad place in my life. I was new father, didn't know how to handle it. But I'll tell you what, not a day has gone by since I made that decision. I didn't regret it. Oh, come on, that's lame. That boy's not buying it. We're not buying it, right? But that's the backstory. That's why this guy is who he is today, because he grew up without that. And we think that, and we're like, ah, oh, that's horrible. That's usually the lame story that gets told at that point. But what if it weren't? What if, and I don't think I've ever seen this in a movie, what about if in that scene he says, Dad, why did you leave us? And the dads look shocked. I didn't leave you. Is that what you think? I didn't leave you. He says, yeah, you went out to get a pack of cigarettes and never came back. He says, I don't even smoke. That didn't happen. Is that what you were told? Let me tell you what happened. We were poor. I had just lost my job. I had one thing of value in my entire life. That was my father's pocket watch he'd given me. I took it to a pawn shop to get money to buy groceries for the family. I came home and you were gone. Your mom took you and you were gone. And from that moment to this, I have been trying to get you. I couldn't find you. 
I was broke. I had to save enough money to hire a private eye. How come you think it took me so long? You're three states over from where we used to live. I just found you. I have sacrificed everything in my life, spent my last dime to find you. I never left you. You guys left me. That changed the story, right? Because the why matters. Now mama's got some explaining to do. But um, that whole story changes now. That movie takes off in a place you never saw coming. Feel free to write that story. Free. So you just make yourself a big, big little thing. Maybe you've seen it. I don't know. I've never seen that movie. But if that happens, it's like, okay, the why matters. The why matters. And so this is what I want to know. God, why? Why do you leave us? And here's what I found out after I did a admittedly cursory study of all the major religions. And I only studied the major religions because, listen, if it died out, I'm not interested in it. I'm pretty sure if God gave us a religion, it wouldn't die out. And this only has 12 people thinking the spaceship's coming to get them. I don't care. You know, I'm going to go with something a little more. So the five major religions, only Christianity even tries to answer this question. Now, Judaism, of course, because we got grabbed in Judaism, has some of the answer, but only Christianity fully answers this question. And so that's what I'm going to walk through now. I'm going to walk through the story of God. Now, for you theologians, I am going to really just kind of gloss over an awful lot of the Bible, and forgive me. But I want to follow one storyline to show you how the Bible as we know it answers this question. If you don't know why I'm using the Bible as our text, go back to the second sermon in the series. I explain why the Bible has to be the text we use. Okay. So let me, wa- let me pick up where the questions left off, and let me say, first of all, according to the Bible, good news, we were right. There is a God, and he is moral. Also, good news, um, he created us, and he created us for a purpose. And in fact, uh, his purpose is not just to look at us from afar. We're not in a holy terrarium where he comes up and taps the glass to see what his favorite lizard's doing. How you guys, how you guys doing there? That's not why he created us, right? He created us actually for something more. And the psalmist picks up on this idea, and he tells us about this. Oh, Lord, our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have displayed your splendor above the heavens. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you've ordained, what is man that you even think of him? What is the son of man that you care for him? And yet you have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him rule over the works of your hands and you've put all things under his feet. He's saying you have created us for a purpose. By the way, real quick, just for some of you who have a different translation, this is the proper translation. I have no idea why most translations translate this word, angels. You may have heard that, a little lower than the angels, which doesn't even make sense because then Paul tells us in the New Testament, we will judge angels. Makes no sense. When you look at this word in the Hebrew, it's Elohim, which is the word that they use when they're speaking of God the Trinity. And it is translated every other time in the Bible, God, except for some strange reason, translations in Psalm they translated angels in many of the translations you'll have. But that, that's, an, I believe, an incorrect translation. And I have a theory as to why that happened, but I'm going to move past it. Okay, we were created for a purpose. Now, if we go back to the point we were created, if we take a look at, at when God created us, according to the Christian Bible, he, we're going to get a glimpse of why he created us and the purpose that we have. So God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish, the sea, over the birds, the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth and every creeping thing. This dovetails very nicely with what the psalmist just told us, but I want to stop on this really weird word in here. God said, let us. What? (laughs) Is this the royal we he's using here? The reason why is, again, God Elohim, because we serve, Christianity teaches 
one God, three persons. They were all present in the creation, and we know that because the Bible tells us God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son are all present at creation. So what the creator God is saying is, now let's make someone like us in our likeness and in our image. And he goes on. And so he created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. And this is, when the Bible double talks like that, it's because it's trying to make emphasis. It's trying to say, don't miss this. You're created in the image of God, right? Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God told them exactly what he just said he was going to do. Be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth. Okay, so there's only a couple things that just coming right out of here that I can glean from what I, what I see there to know what our purpose is. First of all, you were created to create. Has to be because you're created in the image of creative God. You have to be created to create. And, and I, really it comes down to this. Uh, there's two kinds of people in the world. There's creators and producers. And one of the devil's biggest tricks is he's taught Christians to be consumers and not producers. Now I'm not saying this has to be video or music or books or anything. I'm just simply saying you were made to create something somehow, some way. You were given God this desire to create this, whatever this is. It could be a family. It could be a home. It could be a, a book. It could be a story. It could be anything. But God created you to create. And if you're not creating, you're not, a, not living up to your purpose. You feel unfulfilled. And there's a reason for that because you know that you are not doing what God created you to do. Uh, so uh, C.S. Lewis said something I thought was really great. He said, um, we don't need more Christian authors. We don't need more Christian books. We need more Christians writing books. And that's a true statement. Because what you believe will come out in your work, whatever your work is, it will show. And the problem is, Christians are like, eh, I don't want to do Christian stuff. That's all lame. You know, Christian television is kind of lame. Christian music is kind of lame. Christian art, I don't want to do that. So I'm going to just simply stop creating. And so what we do is we just have this vacuum, and guess who fills it? The world. Now, I've never done a study on this. I've never seen a study done on this, but I'm betting that I'm going to under, undersell this idea because uh, I just know to my soul it's true. There is by far, by at least 100 times, more money being donated to, more creative energy being applied to, and more technology being created for the, the, the delivery of pornography than the delivery of the gospel. And it, 101 probably doesn't even cover it. He says, well, who donates to that? Everybody who clicks on it. So they make money. And as long as you click on it, as long as you pay for it, you continue to fund it. And they're going to keep finding ways of bringing it to your child's iPad and iPhone. And, and we're letting them do it. And they got no, we got nothing to offer because we're not out there creating it. It's going and doing it. They're, they're, we're doing nothing. And so the world will create if we don't. Okay. That's a, that's a free sermon. It has nothing to do with this, but uh, we are his workmanship, Paul says in Ephesians, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. That means before the world began so that we would walk in them. It says you were created to do good works. That's why you were created. That's one of your purposes. Also from that little thing, no matter what else you may think the Bible says, this is undeniably true. Men and women are equally important. You know why? Because he created them in his image, male and female, he created them. That tells me you need both male and female to see the image of God. That means he puts some of his attributes in men and some of attributes in women, and you need both to see the full attributes of God. That's what that tells me. And so they have to be equally important, no matter what else you want to think about it, they have to be equally important to him. Why do you think God wants a male and a female as a head of the, of the house? So kids can grow up knowing the image of God. 
in a perfect world. You know, we're not very perfect and we kind of screw things up. But that was the point. Again, Paul writing in 1 Corinthians says this, however, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of women. You are locked together. God created you that way. And he created you for that purpose. Okay, finally, this is what I really want to get to. You were created to be part of God's family. Now, I don't really have the right word. Family is not the right word. And I struggled with this. I tried, and I looked in the thesaurus. I couldn't come up with the right word. And I just don't think it exists in English because it's far more than family. Family, community, relationship, communion, put all those together and you have what God had in mind. And the reason <clears throat> that we know that is because at the beginning of the world, when the world was created, there's only these things that happened, that existed. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and the community they lived in because they were together. They had this, this tight community that was deeper than anything we can imagine. Like call it a relationship, call it, whatever, call it a holy relationship, whatever you want to call it, deeper than we can imagine. And when God said, let us create someone like us, they were saying, we want them to be part of this. We were created to be part of God's family. This is all throughout the Bible, but in Ephesians 1.5, so he decided long ago, that's the beginning of the world, to adopt us. He adopted us as his children with all the rights children have. He did it because of what Jesus Christ had done, and it pleased him to do it. When you adopt a child into your family, you can take a family, in, a member in, and this was often done like kings. They'd have, um, they'd have bastard sons, and they'd bring them into their family. They'd raise them, but they would not adopt them. They would raise them. If you ever see the word fits, by the way, that actually is, means bastard son of, <laughs> the, you know. So, but anyway, but that, so that's, that's, uh, that was very common. They bring them, but they would not adopt them. Why? Because as soon as they adopted them, they had the rights to everything. You can raise them and take care of them, but when you adopt them, they had all the rights a child has. When Jesus Christ died for you, and God says, now I'm going to adopt you, when you are adopted in God's family, you have every right that Jesus Christ has as son. That's what God's saying. I'm going to adopt you into my family. Now, we don't have very much about the first days after creation. I wish we would. I wish Moses would have taken a little more time and write up a little bit more what was going on in those early days. And I know parchment was probably hard to come by and forgive me for criticizing Moses the way he chose to write. But man, I wish I had just a little more there because this must have been the most exciting time in the universe. This had to be the time that God felt the most joy. He finally had what he wanted. And, and there's something else that we kind of have this idea that God like snapped his fingers and things popped into creation, you know, like Mickey Mouse and, and the apprentice, uh, what is the sorcerer's apprentice, remember that, you know, he points his finger and things happen. That's how we see God. Job gives us a different picture of that. Job gives us a picture that God worked to do this. It took effort for God to do this. He rested for a reason. Creation exhausted him. He kind of gives that picture, if you read Job, there was a lot more work than we, we originally thought. But it was worth it, because now it's finally done. Here it is, the entire universe created. He's put his crowning cre creation there, male and female, in his own image, and he walked in the garden with them. Can you imagine what that was like? God must have been so excited. He's worked so hard for this, and now here they are, and they're exactly perfect. Of course, they're exactly as he imagined them, because... That's how they got created, because he imagined me, he created them. But it's this wonderful thing going on. And I don't know what God was doing. My guess is he was showing them creation. How would you like a tour of the world done by the one who created it? That must have really been awesome, right? Walking around them, but they have to sleep. That must have been killer. You know, every now and then they have to sleep. Okay, you guys go to sleep. 
I'll let you sleep, you know. And I, I, I know this is probably wrong, but this is how I picture it. Um, when I was in 10th grade, I got my first dog. It was a Siberian Husky puppy. Uh, and I knew nothing about dogs except I wanted one. And so I brought it home and did everything wrong with it, including putting it in my bed, on my pillow, wrapped around a little blanket, which made it too hot. It kicked off all the covers. But puppies are cool because they play, and then they sleep. They wake up, they poop and pee, eat, and they play some more, and it's just a cycle. And this, a puppy can fall asleep in the middle of a bite. You know, they can be biting you, and all of a sudden it's sleeping. Well, that, you know, just like all of a sudden I got tired, forget it, I'm out. You know? And there's fun to have, and I wanted one for so long, I finally had this puppy, and I hated it when it slept. You know, I go over and tickle its feet. Come on, come on, come on. You know, no, it's still sleeping. You know, kind of look over, and as soon as I saw it move, ha, your eye. You know, let's play. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, and so that's what I did. I kind of picture God's a little bit like this with Adam and Eve. Oh, they're sleeping. And Adam like moves. Oh, good, you're up. Come on, come on, come on, come. There's a sunrise. You're missing. This is beautiful. You got to see this. You know, wait to see what I did with the giraffe. You won't believe this. And it just, I just see he was so excited to run, run him around and show him things, right? And this was a wonderful, wonderful time. Everything was exactly the way God planned it, the way he designed it, and the way he created it, except it can't last. And the reason it can't last is because he made us in the image of him which means he made us with a soul. And a soul has a will. And so here's the thing. It wasn't enough for him to have us there so he could love us. He needed us to love him back. And love must have a choice. You can't have love without a choice. And if anybody's ever been in love, you know that. No one can tell you, you will love me. Oh, no, I won't. You, know? you have to have a choice. You have to choose to love somebody. And so God had to give us a choice. Well, you're a good God, and you've created a good earth. What's the choice going to be between? How in the world can you give them a choice? Well, the only thing you could give somebody a choice between if this is ultimate good is evil. But here's the challenge. Evil doesn't exist. Remember last week we talked about God cannot be tempted by evil, can't do evil, he can't create evil. Evil doesn't exist. How can you give someone a choice between good and something that doesn't exist? Well, God cannot create evil, but his creation can. So what he does is he gives us the right to create evil through our choice, which is kind of theologically brilliant, but putting that aside for a second, must have been really hard for him to do because he also knew the choice we were going to make. So the Lord God commanded a man saying, from any tree in the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat that, you will surely die. Okay, so first of all, a lot of people say the wrong thing. That uh, you, you know, God doesn't want you to know uh, the, the, the difference. No, no, this, isn't, this wasn't that, this is a tree that knowledge of good and evil. Right, so it's a knowledge of. And in the Old Testament, talked about this before, the word knowledge in Hebrew has a very deep meaning, much more than us. You know, I can say, oh, I know, I know that guy. You know, like I met him three times. Oh, I know him. You know, that's how we use the word know. It's intellectual. I know who, I recognize him. I know who that is. That's not Hebrew. In Hebrew, the word know means I have a, an intimate relationship. Like I've experienced that person and I know them, right? We know this because later in the next chapter, there's a very famous verse from the way the King James translated, and Adam knew Eve and Eve conceived a child. That's a very intimate knowledge, right? And so in the, in the Hebrew, that's what knowledge means, to know. So what God is saying is this, basically, I'm going to give you a choice between the knowledge of good and evil, but you already know good. You've been walking around with them for however long they've been walking around together. They know God. They know everything he's done. They know good. What he's given them is, do you want the choice to know evil? And he says, if you choose to, 
you will know it intimately, and it will kill you. Now, that should have been the end of it right then, you know. That should have been the very end of it, but it turns out it wasn't. Because the tempter came and said, you know what? The only thing God won't let you do is that. Well, that tells me that's the source of God's power. If you do that, you are God, which is the basis of all sin. So they chose it, and they did that. So the problem is that evil corrupts. You can't introduce a little bit of evil to purity and still be pure. You can't be a little bit pure. You're pure or you're not. So as soon as evil went out of the world, did you ever do those, remember those science class experiments we did in like 10th grade or whatever? You'd have a beaker, you have to have pure water in it. Some of you people remember this, right? You couldn't put anything in that at all. In fact, you had to clean it off and sterilize it before you could use it. And the teacher come around with a special bottle, you know, and then you couldn't pour it in. And wise guys running around with salt trying to throw it in behind them. You can't let those guys do it. One grain of salt and that water's no longer pure, your, your experiment will fail. One grain of salt was all it took. Because you can't be a little bit pure. You're either pure or you're not. As soon as the evil entered the world, it brought with it corruption and it spread. And one of evil's first attributes is perversion. Now, we usually think about that in terms of sex stuff, but that actually isn't just that. Perversion is anytime something that is good is twisted and used for something else. And here's the thing you need to understand. Everything you hate about the world, everything you hate about the world comes from this. Lust is just a perversion of love. Pride, hate prideful people, that's just a perversion of praise. Cancer is a perversion of healing. Literally, cells are making themselves. That's what healing is, but it kills. Everything you hate, God didn't create. We did. And I say we because, you know, it was Adam and Eve who made the, made the choice, but we wouldn't have done it any better. Come on. <laughs> I mean, I've, it's not like I've blown it out. I mean, oh, well, if I'd been there, we'd all still be in that. We'd still be in the Garden of Eden. No, I know, I know who I am. We wouldn't have done any better. We created these things. And the rest of the Old Testament is the story of God trying to get us back. Because when evil went into the world, God became, the pure God became separated from us because of the evil. And the rest of the Old Testament talks about how he tries to get him back. And I'm glossing over a lot of stuff I know. But what he does is he selects a tribe, we know that, called Israel. And he says, I'm going to show you my favor. And he tells them this. He says, look, um, this command I'm going to give, obey my voice and I'll be your God. And you shall be my people. If you walk the way I command you, everything will go well with you. Right? That doesn't seem fair, by the way, does it? Did it ever bother you that God picked a nation and favored them? It did me. Because I had three brothers. You know? That'd be like my parents picking one of us, which they did, and it wasn't me. That's all I'm going to say. I'm not going to go into details. But it always kind of bothered me, you know, that, that, that God did that. You showed favoritism. Why would you do that? He did it so all men might return to him. His plan was, and he says this throughout the Bible, look, Israel, what's going to happen is you're going to follow me. I'm going to teach you how to be righteous. That's a fancy theological term. All righteous means is right standing with God. Righteous means that you are right with God. I'm going to teach you how to be right with me. And because you do that and you follow only me and not these false gods, I'm going to bless your socks off or sandals, I guess. They didn't probably didn't wear socks. We're going to bless your sandals off. I'm going to bless you so much that everybody around you is going to see the blessing, and they're all going to come to me because of it. You are going to be my light to the dark world. They're going to see what living with God brings people, and everybody's going to want to come. And we know that. 
He says, like I said, throughout the Old Testament, he'll hint on this. In Isaiah, he says, look, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant and just restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel. I'm going to make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Also in Jeremiah, it says, I will bring him near and he will come close to me. For who is he who will devote himself to be close to me? Says the Lord God, you will be my people. Come close to me and you'll be mine. We know this, by the way, because there's a book in our Bible that is a person who is not Jewish who is held out as an example of someone who drew, not, drew close to God. It's called Ruth. Ruth was not Jewish. In fact, in the lineage of Jesus Christ, there's a prostitute named Rahab who was not Jewish. She was in Jericho, and if you remember the story of this, uh, this is kind of bizarre, but um, Joshua sends these two, two young men into Jericho to scout out the defenses of the city. And they spent a week in, you know, the bordello. So <laughs> you can draw whatever conclusions you want from that, but I'm pretty sure they weren't looking at the nation's defenses, right? But they were there, and, and, and the thing they come back with was nothing. They don't have any information for, for Joshua at all, which is fine because Joshua has no idea how to take the city, and God ends up taking the city. This whole thing makes no sense. Really, if you look at what they go there for and why they go there and why, why would God tell us about that? Because, because the person who owned, I'm just going to be blunt here, the whorehouse, the person who owned it was a woman named it Rahab and she was kind to them. And because of her kindness, they said, you know what? When we attack, hang out a little tiny red silk rope, uh, rope and that's how we'll know where you are and we'll save you and your family. The walls of Jericho come down, and the only thing they can find is that rope, and they go in, they get her, and they bring her out. Why? I don't know. Somehow, somehow, Rahab had drawn close to God. She knew who God was, and she was trying to find him. And she was drawing close to God, and God said, save that one. He sent those two guys in there for one reason only, to save Rahab. And she's in the lineage of Jesus Christ. So we know it wasn't just the Jews God was trying to save. He was always trying to save but in order to do this, he needed the Israelites to be an example to the world, and they did a really bad job of it. In fact, if you've ever done like the read through the Bible in a year thing, you'll be so frustrated with the Israelites by the end of the Old Testament. You're like, what, again? Again you're doing this? Just kill them, God. Just kill them. You know, you'll be rooting for God to kill them. I can't believe you're putting up with these guys, right? And here's the scary thing. The Israelites are the picture of us. So just, you know, be careful <laughs> wishing for, for judgment on Israel. Uh, but anyway, they do a very, very, very bad job of the covenant. And the way the Old Testament ends, and here's why the Judaism only takes us so far in answering our question. The way the Old Testament ends is the prophet comes and he says this. You guys are in trouble. Malachi says this. I will send my messenger who will prepare a way before me. That's John the Baptist. And then suddenly the Lord you're seeking will come to his temple. Jesus is going to show up suddenly in the temple. The messenger of the covenant, whom you're desiring, who you say you desire, he's going to show up, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure when he comes? Who's going to stand there when he comes? Because he is coming with refining fire. He says, when he shows up, the talking part's over. It's over. In fact, when he shows up, it's the covenant's done. The old covenant's gone when he shows up. Your days of taking advantage of God's goodness to get ahead of your neighbor who's not Jewish are over. Those days are gone because when Jesus shows up, it's going to change everything. He's going to open this up to anybody who desires to come close. 
So Jesus comes and he tells us this. Look, the thief, which is evil, and all the things evil brings, the thief only comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. But I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. New deal. Anybody can come. And then he'll lay down his life to make that possible. So this is where I am, right? When, when all is said and done, this is the only full answer to the question, God, why'd you leave? Through the Christian religion, through the Christian Bible, when we ask that question, God, why did you leave? God answers, my child, I never left. You left me. And from the moment you left, I have done everything in my power to bring you back. I have tried everything to reach you. I have spent every treasure in heaven. I gave up the most precious thing to me to get you back. I didn't leave you. You left me. And when you had gotten so far to that dark forest that you called evil that you couldn't find your way back out, I came to get you. And Jesus' light, life was a light, and he left us footprints back to God. So all we have to do is follow his footprints his blood-stained, nail-scarred footprints back to the throne of God. That's my religion. That's my God. And that's why my God is God. Would you all please pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll give us a new vision of what you...